in the book of Acts. Acts is a historical and theological account of the beginnings of Christianity, particularly in the first century as it was rooted initially and geographically in and around Jerusalem. And then the book of Acts starts to see the spread of Christianity in a pretty radical and surprising way outside of a small group of Jewish believers into the Roman world, and then really throughout Europe, and then eventually throughout the world, even reaching us here today. There's a scholar, Larry Hurtado, who studies the origins of Christianity within the first three centuries. You've heard me reference him before in this series. I want to read another quote from him that you haven't heard uh, now. From the earliest years, what Christianity became went trans-ethnic and trans-local addressing males and females of all social levels and generating circles of followers who were expected to commit to a particular belief and behavior from a point of initiation into the young religious movement. Though initially small and significant, though initially small and insignificant in the first centuries, the movement continued to grow and spread geographically quickly obtaining a salience and having an impact well beyond its numbers, as reflected by the repeated expressions of antipathy from non-Christians towards Christians. He's speaking about this resistance. What initially seemed to be small and insignificant actually started to grow and become more significant. What was initially localized started to become translocal. What was initially concentrated within one ethnicity started to become trans-ethnic. And as Christianity became trans-ethnic and translocal, it started to be met with resistance. It started to be met with persecution. It started to be met with threats. And that really is what so much of the book of Acts is about. It's about the progress of the gospel, yet it's also about survival. It reminds me of the, the phrase that's often used in March around basketball tournament time, right? March Madness in the NCAA tournament. Uh, the, the phrase that is often used is survive and advance. Survive and advance. And that's what's going on in early Christianity is this mantra of survive and advance. So what we see today in Acts chapter 16 is Paul and others surviving, at least for the time being, and advancing the gospel. So stand with me as we read this narrative account in Acts chapter 16, and we will actually end in verse 35 as opposed to going through verse 40. Sorry to disappoint you. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed at this, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, while in prison, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and to the prisoners who were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set before them, and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As already mentioned in the announcements, we're in the midst of a discussion and a study here in a small group with men during the lunch hour here this second half of the fall on this issue of faith and work. And it really is an interesting and important topic to discuss because it really is that which we give ourselves to more than anything else. And if we believe what the Scripture teaches, which is Christ is the Lord of all over all of life, then we cannot live life in compartments. We cannot live life deeming certain things spiritual and other things either explicitly or implicitly unspiritual. Abraham Kuyper, the former prime minister of the Netherlands, classically and historically said, there is no square inch in all of creation which Christ has not declared, this is mine. Which would mean that applies to our work. And so when we discuss faith and work in this study, or when we think about it, or when we read Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, or when we read other people that have written on this subject, it is all precipitated upon this foundation, God works. And because God works, we work. And so when we look at the question, how is God working, it starts to instruct how we work. And we will look in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and we look at God's work in creation. And then when we look throughout the rest of the scriptures, we also can assess God working and how he's working. And what does it look like for us as his image bearers to reflect and to mimic and to carry after the work that he is doing? But the main thing I want us to know this morning is not so much about our work per se, or at least primarily, what I want us to see from Acts chapter 16 is simply this. God is at work. God is at work. On a macro level, 
in a micro level. God was at work in the book of Acts. God is at work and God will continue to be at work. What is God's work? His work is to build His kingdom. His work is redemption. His work is restoration. His work is renewal. His work is recreation. God is in the business of the gospel. He is restoring all things unto Himself. He is making all things new. That's the business of God's work. And we see this explicitly and clearly throughout the book of Acts. And we see it in a very poignant way in our passage today from Acts chapter 16. We see that God is working. Before we get into some of the particulars of the text, I want us to entertain the question on a personal level. Do we see that God is working? Do we believe that God is at work? In our world at large, in our culture, do we see God working? Maybe more specifically in our own lives, do we see God working in our life on a more micro level? And if so, what about this question? What is He up to? You see, it's so easy day in and day out to go through our lives and to be consumed with, as already referenced, work, or to be consumed with school, or to be consumed with relationships, or to be consumed with status, power, control, money, approval, or any of the other various things that the Bible would often refer to as idols that busy us? Do we see God at work in those things? Do we see God up to something in the midst of our life? And do we believe it? Do we catch it? Can we join in what He's doing? Because the Scripture tells us that God is up to something. Once again, macro and micro. Corporately and individually. Outside of His church and within His church, God is at work. But I think it's hard for us to perceive this at times. We often feel choked by the cares and the worries of the world. We feel choked by homework, right, kids? We feel choked by health problems. We feel choked by relational discord. We feel choked by our ends not meeting financially. Whatever it is, it's hard in our lives through living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be to see God at work. It's so easy and tempting for us to simply live by sight, which there's a problem with that, because all of Christianity is based upon this idea of faith. And so Acts 16 is an example of God working in lives of people individually like Paul and Silas and Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the slave girl. He's working on a macro, micro level in their lives as he's increasing or giving them faith for the first time. And he's working in a macro level as he seeks to bring his kingdom and his good news and the gospel and redemption and renewal and restoration and recreation. God is working. I want us to unpack that in three more specific ways this morning. 
beyond the larger concept of him being at work. I want us to see that God is working in hardship, God is working in conversion, and God is working in his church. So God is at work. Acts 16 displays this in a general way, and then more specifically we see in Acts chapter 16 that God is working in and through suffering and hardship. God is working in and through conversions in the lives of three specific individuals in Acts chapter 16 in some pretty fascinating ways. And then lastly, we see that God is working more corporately in His church through the impact of the conversions that we see in Acts chapter 16. But first, let's tackle this idea of God working in the midst of hardship. Now, let's just begin by saying, I wish this wasn't so. This is not my idea. In fact, every day of my life rebels against this reality. But the reality exists nonetheless, that it is a common pattern for God to work in and through suffering, in and through hardship, ultimately to bring about His good, and this is what's even harder to believe, and our good. God is at work in all things to glorify Himself so that we may enjoy Him, and God ultimately is using all things, even hardship and suffering, to bring about the good that He is seeking to accomplish. We see this displayed in the Old Testament in a number of ways, but I think about the story of Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. That's not good. And at the end of Joseph's life, when he's reunited with his brothers and they realize it's him and they have a moment where they're concerned as they're face-to-face with Joseph after they thought he essentially had died, after they sold him into slavery. And then all of a sudden they're like, "Uh uh-oh. And Joseph said, no, it's actually okay. What you did, you intended it to harm me, but God. It's amazing how often we hear the proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures in those two words, but God. God, you intended this to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. One of the things, among others, that I love about that verse, Joseph does not say what they did was good. And this is where Christians oftentimes can get confused in the name of trying to take a moral high road. We can call those things which are not good, good, but God actually doesn't do that. He just makes good out of that which is not good. A friend of mine recently uh, sent me a link uh, to a small blurb on a podcast. And the podcast, some of you may or may not be familiar with it. I've had some conversations with a couple of you at least about this particular podcast, but it's simply entitled The Jocko Podcast. And it's uh, birthed out of this man named uh, Jocko Willowlink. And I'm not sure exactly, I know how to pronounce his first name. I'm not sure exactly if I'm pronouncing his last name correct. But he's built this whole concept entitled Extreme Ownership. He's a former Navy SEAL, and he looks like one. And he talks like one. And he says things that you would think a former Navy SEAL that now is swimming in the waters of business leadership would say. And i got to be honest... These kind of things usually I have an aversion to. They come off to me as a little disingenuous and somewhat cheesy, and you might find what I'm talking about to be that if you look this up 
on your own. But that's not the reaction I had when I actually watched it. It was only two minutes of a clip from the podcast on YouTube. And Jocko is talking about hardships and suffering. And he's talking about the way in which he always responds to them. And he's given this mock scenario as a leader and as a boss. And when people come to him, let's say that work under him and something's not going right. I don't know if that ever happens to you in life or in work. Like things don't work out exactly like you wanted them to. And I don't know how you typically react to when things don't work out like you want them to in business or at home, or maybe your kids occasionally don't do what you ask them to do. But Jocko's approach always is simply good. But what about this? And this is not working out. This is not good. He said so much so that those who work under me start to feel some degree of insecurity because they know when they report something to him that is unfavorable or that's not the way it's supposed to be, they say, I know what you're going to say. And he says, what am I going to say? They're gonna, you're going to say, good. And he said, that's right. Because when things are hard, when things don't go the way they're supposed to go, it gives us an opportunity to grow. It gives us an opportunity to take responsibility. It gives us an opportunity to know that we're still alive. And in many ways, we see God doing good work here in the midst of suffering and hardship. You know, it shouldn't surprise them, and it doesn't seem like it does, by the way. It's as if Paul, throughout the book of Acts, implicitly is saying, you're going to arrest me? Good. You're going to flog me? Good. You're going to persecute me? Good. You know, Paul did write the vast majority of the New Testament, and he wrote the vast majority of the New Testament from where? A cool little desk somewhere in like, you know, I don't know, the Shire? A nice pastor's study, great library, Nice table, armchair, pipe. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, and he wrote the majority of the New Testament in jail. Good. In this world, you will have trouble. Paul knew that Jesus said that. Paul shared the sentiment that we see in James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Good. Or Peter knew a thing or two about suffering. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Or N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, Bishop of Durham, says, God's messengers are not protected from the sufferings that will come when their message challenges the easy, smug rule of political, economic, or religious forces. But God is not mocked. Vindication will come. We would much prefer it if we could have the result without the process, right? The crown without the cross. But that is never the way of the kingdom 
of God. This is the reality. God has called us to experience glory and suffering. God has called us to experience blessings and battles. God has called us to taste beauty and affliction. It's not me saying this. I wish this wasn't the case. But it's God saying this, that He is at work always, even in hardships and sufferings. And this is put on display throughout the early church, throughout the spread of Christianity, and specifically here in the life of Paul and Silas, who are victims, and you, and you can read commentaries on this, I'm not reading political rhetoric into this, who are victims of bigotry, who are victims of racism, who are victims of religious prejudice. And as they are victimized in this way, it's essentially as if they say, good. In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. God is at work in hardship and in suffering. God is also at work here in this story in a pretty fantastic way through conversion. God is bringing individual transformation through three diverse people that this text unfolds for us. In many ways, each of these people deserve a sermon in and of themselves, particularly the first one and the last one. Lydia, a businesswoman, a wealthy businesswoman who has a house big enough to house her family and others, who deals in purple linen and cloth, who is either single or widowed, carrying a significant influential role, not only in the culture at large, but in the early church. Lydia is a foundational leader and member of the church of Philippi that the whole book of Philippians is written about. Who's the cornerstone, humanly speaking, of the Philippian church? Arguably, Lydia. It's amazing to see God working and meeting her where she was, but not keeping her where she was. So God can bring about His transforming grace through His work in the life of a wealthy, single businesswoman and make her the cornerstone of one of the most significant churches in one of the most significant cities in the early Roman world. But we also see God's work of conversion in a diverse way as we see the conversion of this slave girl. So we go from rich to poor. We go from older and established to young and unestablished. We go from highly respected in the culture to a young slave girl who is possessed by a demon, literally, the text tells us, python spirit, who is seeking to follow Paul and Silas. And if you read the text at first, you might think, oh, she's saying good things. She's proclaiming salvation. She's proclaiming the name of God. She is proclaiming the name of God. You know what God she's proclaiming? Zeus. And you know what she's doing with regard to salvation and Paul's message? Mocking him. Why? Because she's possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. We think about those all the time, right? Like that's just part of our, the air we breathe, spiritual warfare. Wrong. Yet in the scriptures, we see this present always. 
In fact, Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, guess what? Our primary conflict and struggle and war is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers and authorities in this present darkness. We've got to be aware of this. It actually shows God's work more in its fullness. That God is working here in a poor demon-possessed slave girl to overthrow from her the evil powers that possess her and bring her to a place of faith and repentance. God is at work. And we need Him to be at work because I will tell you this. Anytime we see the advance of the gospel, we will see the presence of spiritual warfare. And whether you've thought about it or not, I'm sure you could testify to this. Why is it so often the case for those of you who are Christians that you come off, let's say, a high or whatever you want to call it, a deep, intimate connection with God, whether it be in prayer or reading Scripture or talking with another person or participating in worship or participating in a conference. And it's almost as if in the next breath you're assailed with some of the deepest temptations that you deal with to sin ever. It seemingly is the way that it works, and we must be more aware of God's work in the midst of the spiritual realm, not only to bring about conversion, but to fight the spiritual forces of darkness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the former century, said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. I know you, I I get it. Look, if I'm you listening to me, especially if you're, I don't know where you're coming from spiritually, I know this just might sound crazy. I just want you to know I'm aware this might sound crazy. (laughs) But if we take what the scriptures say and we don't take this seriously, we're crazy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking we are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. And Acts 16 displays God's work in an amazingly diverse way with this particular girl, but not just with her, but with the spirits that are evil that possessed her. We see God working to change her and to change them to accomplish His purposes. And then lastly, we see God working in conversion of the Philippian jailer. And Acts 16 gives a little more attention to the Philippian jailer with regard to his story and his text, did you follow what goes on here? So Paul and Silas are arrested for preaching the gospel. They are claimed to be things that actually are not true. Paul was a Roman. That's a whole other discussion in this story. But he, here he is in Rome being arrested by Romans. And Paul, guess what? Was a Roman citizen. They have to repent and recant of that towards the end of the story, but nevertheless, they're thrown into prison. And after they're thrown into prison in the midst, remember God working in the midst of hardship. You remember Paul and Silas having this idea where they embrace this worldview that in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. They have this idea where they're thrown into prison 
for preaching the gospel. They've seen the conversion of Lydia. They've seen the conversion of the slave girl. They're turning the world upside down and they're thrown in prison. You know what they're saying? Good. And you know what they're doing? Praying. You know what else they're doing? Singing hymns to God. What kind of witness do you think that was to other people around them? Do you think it might have been a powerful proclamation of the gospel implicitly to see these two men that were preaching and proclaiming the gospel unjustly experience suffering, racism, prejudice, and bigotry at the hands of Roman officials to put them in jail? And in the midst of that, what are they doing? Praising, praying, and singing hymns to God for all to hear. And then in the midst of this time of praying and singing hymns to God, an earthquake. The walls shake. Things are in shambles. And the Philippian jailer who had been tasked with one thing, don't let these guys get away, realizes at this point, surely they're gone. I mean, they've been thrown in here unjustly. Why would they stay? There's no way they're here. Except implicitly here, they practice unbelievable Ethical integrity. Because you know what? They didn't run. The jailer can't believe it. He's about to kill himself. They said, no, 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 don't kill yourself. And then the next thing the jailer says is, oh my God, what must I do to be saved? God is at work. God is at work through a crazy circumstance. God is at work through injustice. God is at work. And this man's life through these men, these other men. So much so that the Philippian jailer, as one commentator noted in a more literal yet approachable translation, how do I get myself out of this mess? That's the way N.T. Wright translates this passage, this question. Our text says, what must I do to be saved? He says, maybe a better interpretation would be, how do I get myself out of this mess? Which is a great question because everybody's asking that question, right? I mean, if we don't realize we're in a mess, like categorically in life, then we're asleep. Simone Weil, who's a French philosophical, mystical, religious poet, says, the soul can persuade itself that it's not hungry, but to do so, it must lie. We're all hungry. Our souls are longing. We're all in a mess, like the same mess. And the Philippian jailer realizes it in this pretty sensational moment, and he says, what must I do to get myself out of this mess? And I don't know what he expected, but it seems logical that one would think a long list of penitential things at this point. Or one would say, nothing, man, you're sorry. You can't. You're in a mess, you can't get yourself out. Or, yeah, if you're going to get yourself out of this mess, it's going to take a long time. Better get busy. You got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to wear that, and you got to talk like this, and you got to hang with these people, and you got to go here, and you got to do this, and you definitely have to be a part of a small group. What does Paul say? How do I get myself out of this mess? Believe. I don't know, it sounds a lot like John 3.16. Sounds a lot like Mark 1. Sounds a lot like Romans 9. 
I don't know why we confuse these things so much in the church of what it means to know God. But the scriptures seem to be very clear about this. How do we know God? You believe in Christ. Well, what about the Old Testament? You ever heard of Abraham? How was Abraham declared righteous? Through his belief. How do we get ourselves out of this mess? We actually don't get ourselves out of this mess by repenting of our sin and believing in the forgiveness of sin through Christ on the cross. That's how we get out of this mess. That's what it means to be saved, just in case you're confused, just in case you're wondering whether you embrace this or not, and whether you've heard this culturally or not, and I don't know where you are coming from, and I don't know what people have told you. But I'll go to the mat on this. The scriptures principally teach a person comes to salvation through repentance and belief, period. Amen and amen. And this is what we see with the Philippian jailer. He comes to a place of conversion through repenting of his sin and believing in the death of Christ on the cross for his sin. And he is converted. And can it be that I should gain? The great hymn is entitled, the third verse, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This jailer has been awakened in the dungeon flamed with light. And from that, he has gone forth and followed Christ. What must I do to be saved? How do I get myself out of this mess. Repent and believe. Period. In Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing. Lastly, and and very briefly, so we've seen God at work in hardship, we've seen God at work in conversion, and then here, lastly, we see God at work in His church. And it's really the effect of this conversion that we see particularly with the Philippian jailer, but then Lydia is referenced and mentioned again. And then we could just read the book of Philippians, which would assume all three of these individuals were founding members of. That's a pretty amazing thing, to see this unity of the gospel in the diversity between the rich, the poor, and even the middle class, right? Rich Lydia, poor slave girl, middle class law enforcement officer also referred to as a jailer all foundational in the Philippian church at an early point. But you can see the beginnings of this church right when the Philippian jailer repents and believes. What do we see him doing? We see him embodying the church by first serving Paul and Silas. The text tells us that he cleaned their wounds. Remember, they had just experienced an earthquake. He's got his wounds spiritually cleansed. Now he's going to physically cleanse their wounds. Then he goes home and he tells his entire household that they too must experience the work of God in conversion through repentance and belief. And then what does he do? 
receives the sign and the seal of baptism, which does not save but is important, which is an outward expression of an inward reality, which is a sign and a seal, a means of grace that we see repeatedly throughout the early church, by the way, upon conversion, not only for this man, but his entire household, and one could only conclude there were children in the household. We can talk more about that later. We baptize babies here, but that's not where you are. No big deal, because remember, to be a Christian, doesn't matter what you believe about baptism. You know what matters? Repentance and belief. But we can talk about baptism and other stuff later. So we see God's work in the church, in this household, through hospitality, through baptism, through service, and then through this last aspect. And I love this aspect, and you've heard me talk more about it previously, and we got to experience this last Sunday night in a pretty amazing way. We see celebration. Do you see this here in the text? So all this stuff happens, this earthquake, this washing of the wounds, this baptism, this repentance, and this belief, and then he welcomes them into his home. And by the way, this is always the pattern When a person's heart is open to Christ, you know what else that means is open? Their home. And there's a radical difference between hospitality and entertainment, which would also be a good discussion for another time. Look at verse 33. And then he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. What were they doing at that point? Having a party, like at midnight. At midnight upon conversion, they're doing what they ought to be doing, having food and drink and rejoicing in the middle of the night. That's what the church is supposed to be about. If we want to see God's work in the church, we need to embody what the church is, which is hospitality, which embodies households, which manifests itself through things like the sacraments, like baptism, and also definitely through service, and then also, please, Lord, please, through good food, and through good drink, and through rejoicing, and through celebrating. What? God's work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.